Hello and welcome to the Truth for Doubt discussion series. I'm your host, Michael Badger, and I am very excited to say that this week we were joined by one of my favorite Christian thinkers, Dr. Vern Poitras. Dr. Poitras is the Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Westminster Theological Seminary, and he is the author of many books including Redeeming Science, Chance in the Sovereignty of God, and In the Beginning Was the Word. We asked Dr. Poitras to help us answer the question, what is the Christian's relationship to philosophy? And to also speak about his book, Redeeming Philosophy. If you enjoy our conversation and you want to learn more about Dr. Poitras, he and Dr. John Frame have an amazing website called frame-poitras.org. That's frame-p-o-y-t-h-r-e-s-s.org, which I highly recommend checking out. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right. Well, Dr. Poitras, uh, thank you so much uh, for for joining us on this little podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, you said this is the first podcast you've ever done. Uh, I've done other ones, but they've mostly been phone only. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, hey, I'm very honored. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, well, before we dig into the actual topic at hand, um, I would like for you to, uh, if, you, if you don't mind, giving a little bit of background information on, on who you are, what you do, um, how you came to faith, all of those good things. Well, yeah, I, uh, I grew up in a, a family. My father and mother were committed Christians and went to a Bible-believing church. I made a public profession of faith at a church camp when I was nine years old. For years, I said that that's when I became a Christian. And it certainly was a, a, a watershed experience for me. I was doing it, not just the family. Uh, I knew I was a sinner, that I needed my sins forgiven. I needed to be reconciled to God. So I had heard the gospel message and, and made a commitment that was real. But then, Looking back decades later, I sort of began to hesitate whether I didn't believe in Jesus even before that. <laughs> it's a quite, you know, it was a watershed, but Christians who become Christians at a young age tend to have many watersheds mm -hmm. afterwards. Right. So I don't know for sure, but yeah, that was the beginning, or at least near to the beginning. Uh, but then I... I uh, had a gift and a love for mathematics. So I wanted to be a mathematics teacher on a secular campus and to help the Christian group there. And of course, being, uh, being exposed to the academic wor world, I, I heard anti-Christian arguments uh, and you know, rethought my faith more than once over the years, but uh, I remember one episode particularly where I thought I just can't get around the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. There's all mm. kinds of evidence. So that was that was actually a factor in my life. Although I would also point out that the uh, the Bible itself is divine testimony, but that you know not everybody accepts that. But it's uh, it's a solid basis for living in a way that nothing else is. 
along with, of course, its, its content, right? And centrally, Jesus Christ, he's the ultimate basis. The Bible is, informs us about that. So, so then uh, when I was in grad school, I found myself drifting more and more to my heart, having a primary interest in the Bible and theology and Christian things. So I reassessed then. So I've ended up teaching New Testament here at Westminster Theological Seminary, I'm still teaching. Uh, this is, let's see, 44th year. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, so, well, the topic at hand is, uh, is that of philosophy. So how did you go from, I guess, mathematics to New Testament to, to writing all these wonderful books uh, about philosophy? Well, one of the influences on my life, the, the God used, I mean, God being the primary uh, cause, but one of the influences was a book by Abraham Kuyper hmm. called Lectures on Calvinism. The title is not what most people would think, uh, but it's really about the implications of the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. If he is alive today, which I believe he is, if he's reigning in heaven, then there's implications for every segment of life because he's Lord of all. Hmm. So Abraham Kuyper, this was uh, near the turn into the 20th century. He encouraged Christian believers to think out and work out what does that mean in all kinds of uh, areas. So he had this book uh, that had chapters on religion, politics, art, science. It was one area. And, uh, and Calvinism in the future was one. So uh, that was a challenge to me. And uh, even when I was still studying mathematics, I thought, how, how, would, how should I look at mathematics in a distinctively Christian way? I think there's a way of doing that. And you may know I wrote a book on it called Redeeming Mathematics. But, right. uh, but actually, the one on philosophy fits into a whole series where I've tried to encourage people to understand there is a distinctive Christian worldview. There is a distinctive Christian way of treating any academic subject. Mm. Uh, I picked, I haven't written on everything. Uh, <laughs> that would be presumptuous, but I've picked some areas where either I had more interest or more study or because I thought they were key areas. And philosophy is one of those areas, though it's come on hard times. It used to be that philosophers in the Western world had an enormous influence. Uh, now it's more science has the prestige. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but actually underneath the surface, there's sort of covert philosophy. Uh, and so it still is important to think through uh, how does a Christian answer what I call the, the big questions? Mm. Because philosophy in the Western world has always been about, well, who am I? What is the world like? Uh, what is time? What, is, what are we going to? Does, it, does uh, our lives have any permanent significance? Do our lives have permanent significance? Uh, and uh, oh, is there any basis for morality? So the the area of philosophy has been either appealed to directly or else people have substitutes for mm -hmm. academic philosophy in terms of a kind of personal philosophy or personal worldview. 
but everybody has some sense of moral standards, even if they say it's all relativistic, yet they know that if somebody breaks into their house and, and steals their electronic equipment and their cash and so on, they know that's wrong. <laughs> they, uh, so e even the relativists uh, deep down know, well, that's because God made us uh, in his image, as the Bible explains, and that we have a conscience though that can be distorted now that we've rebelled against him. So I'm basically telling the Christian story, but that's really part of what true philosophy ought to do of saying, here's who we are. Here's why there are moral standards because God, ex God is, is the standard, but then because we're in his image, we are aware of moral standards, even if in rebellion, we tend to distort them. So, you know, people disagree about even important moral issues, uh, but that's because of the fall that we, we're distorting them, but everybody still thinks there's some kind of standards out there, at least when it personally involves them. Uh, you know, some of the postmodernists have gone fairly far, but if, if, uh, if some uh, bank clerk were to drain their bank account, they wouldn't just take it lying down. <laughs> right, right. They know that's wrong. But if you if there is no right and wrong, well then what what do you have to complain of if you're just mm -hmm. a bag of molecules? And that's that's one of the things I take up in this the book uh, wrote Redeeming Philosophy, because one of the more influential philosophical worldviews today is philosophical materialism, which tends to cloak itself with a prestige of science, but actually it's a philosophy. It's a philosophy that says there is nothing but matter in motion. But if that's all there is, then morality is purely subjective, mm -hmm. either of the individual or of the society. But if the society comes and tells you, sorry, but but you're you're not a respectable person, so we're not going to defend you when the bank clerk drains your account. Then there's nothing you can say if, if there's no absolute morality. So actually, I picked that, but not only because it's influential, but it, because it's fairly easy to show that it's unlivable. Mm -hmm. uh, so if if there's competing philosophies, what does a Christian ap approach look like? And I realized at a certain point in doing this, these Kuyperian things, uh, you know, modeled on Kuyper, I didn't want on science, I didn't want on language and some other things. But I realized, you know, John Frame, who was a teacher of mine, he has really put together most of the pieces of the subdivisions of philosophy. He's done a whole book on epistemology, which is one of the big subdivisions. He's done a whole book on ethics which is another subdivision or the larger area of values, but ethics is the most important. And the one thing he hasn't done uh, thoroughly is metaphysics, that is the nature of what is. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, we, there's also philosophy of science nowadays, but my book, Redeeming Science, had, had made, had shown, look, you know, we, you can't answer all the questions, but you can, say, look, here's the beginnings of a Christian approach. Here's something that you can build on mm -hmm. and even approve because we're all finite, but that doesn't mean we can't act in a, and think in a, in a 
Christian way. So I realized that metaphysics was the whole, and over the years, I think God had given me a way of addressing that too. So that's the main focus, and people who read it expecting that it'll get in detail into epistemology and ethics are going to be disappointed because they say, well, that's already been done. Right, right. <laughs> and, uh, but, but metaphysics, in a sense, without metaphysics, there's nothing else, right? It, mm -hmm. Because depending on how the world is, if the word is just matter in motion, right, if that's the metaphysics, then it destroys your ethics. Right. Right. So you actually, the ethics and the epistemology, and epistemology is all about, well, how do I know what we know and what can be known? Mm -hmm. But if there's nothing out there to be known, or if what is out there is totally disorderly, then you have no chance of building an epistemology either. So actually, the question of what is and what's the nature of what is, is a, a fundamental one although it's something that e modern philosophies, either they've sort of given up on it or they take their guidance from science. Mm -hmm. But the trouble is that science is oriented to discussing matter in motion. Right. <laughs> so if, you, if that's your decision at the beginning, that's your, going to be your output at the end. But that doesn't prove that that's the only thing or even the most basic thing. Mm -hmm. And Christian faith says the most basic thing is God because God always existed and he called the universe into being and the universe is dependent on him. So we have an epistemology which Peter Jones calls twoism, uh, uh, sorry, an, an ontology in metaphysics, it's twoism. That is, there are two kinds of being, God and everything else. Mm, right, yeah. <laughs> right, and initially there was only one. Mm. And that's about as basic as you can get. And if you look at, at the uh, history of Western philosophy, that's not the answer they give. Another aspect of that answer is that the most ultimate thing is personal. God is personal. And that gives a really deep significance to who we are as persons. Mm -hmm. Philosophical materialism obviously can't do that. You're, you're a bag of molecules is the way I put it. <laughs> it's... it's yeah. It just drains significance out of the world. Uh, or else, with you got new age things of you're actually one with God. Mm. You're essentially in your inner being identical with God. But that dissolves your personality just as much. If you're identical with God, then you, what you are as an individual doesn't matter. It's right. only this, this God which is everything somehow. Mm. Uh, so the Bible's point of view is really so relevant for how people think together. Now, I, you can engage ordinary people, I think, even those not trained in philosophy, because they, they have an implicit, they, have, they have still have assumptions about what the world is like. Mm -hmm. And they're not interested in God. I sometimes put it, they're still interested in themselves. <laughs> So, right. so you can talk about, you know, you can talk to the person about what, what he is, right? And, and many modern people who are non-Christian, their furnishings are really pretty bare. It's pretty pitiful. Hmm. They don't know who they are. <laughs> and that's right. part of the problem. So you can say, you know, I, 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 because God has told me, I understand. Mm -hmm. You're made in the image of God. You're 
you're just a glorious creature. You're right. amazing. <laughs> but yeah. Not because you can take credit for it, but because God made Well, that's already something that's, you know, nobody else can say. Well, I mean, you know, you could say that heretical Christian religions, I regard Islam as a kind of a Christian heresy because it claims to be built on. Mm -hmm. But even there, Allah is absolute, but he's not really very personal. He's not very accessible. So they've lost a large amount of what the true God is in that very aspect. And similarly, modern Judaism, though it, you know, it started with the Old Testament, but now it's become mostly a ritual for many people. I mean, there are exceptions, mm -hmm. but it's become mostly a ritual and a cultural thing. Well, again, God is absent. And that's one of the appalling things about living in a modern West, that people yeah. are hungering because they, they're meant, to, they're shaped to have fellowship with God, and they're hungering for that, but they're looking at all the wrong places. So you can see, you know, the question of what is the most ultimate thing? Is it personal or impersonal? Right? That's vital. Right. It's that it's a kind of watershed that affects absolutely everything else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things as well that I found really interesting about this particular book and one that I haven't really heard of before, um, reading other books on philosophy and things like that, but until I really started um, diving deep into, um, you know, Dr. Frame and yourself, is this um, multi-perspective approach to things such as philosophy and ethics. Um, and you spend um, a, a good chunk in your book talking about that. It seems kind of like the foundation that you build things on a little bit as well. Can you explain a little bit what that multi-perspectival approach to, uh, to philosophy is? Right. Well, uh, uh, in the end, it goes back to the fact that God is not only a personal God, one God, mm. infinite person, but he's three persons, I should say, infinitely personal. Because typically we say one God, three persons, right? And the three persons are Father, Son, and the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Those persons have distinctive knowledge of each other. So Matthew eleven twenty seven says that the, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son. Or sorry, no one knows the, the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Mm -hmm. So there's distinctive knowledge of those persons. That's like having a perspective. Now the word perspective can suggest finite knowledge. So that's obviously not what I'm saying. And of course, in the case of God. But still, there's a distinctiveness, and I think that's the distinctiveness that is the foundation for human distinctiveness, because we are made, each of us in God's image, we're a plurality of persons, but we can talk to one another and learn other people's perspectives. So that's sort of the beginning of it. And the thing about the history of Western philosophy is that over and over again, I think it's tried to master the world in a single comprehensive vision. Mm. Well, only God can do that. And mm. even God is three persons. So you yeah. might say, even God has three perspectives. So what you do is you have one perspective, and I've talked about it like one ring to rule them all, you know, the Lord of the Rings, one perspective to rule them all that is going to get us to the bottom. Well, that's behind that is, is this desire for godlike knowledge, for masterful knowledge for knowledge that gets infinitely deep so that I can build my life on it. 
except it should be your knowledge of God as a creature. You're never going to know God as God knows himself. But God offers us genuine fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. And that means that you can be content with finiteness and with multiplicity of ways of analyzing something, even like an apple. And if you, if you uh, got into my book, you know I do several analyses of an apple just to show, look, this is a really complicated <laughs> world where, mm -hmm. where the apple has many aspects to it. And you don't need to feel if I just analyze the, atom, the apple in terms of its atoms, then I've got to the bottom. That's the physicalistic kind of reduction, right? But an apple is tasty. An apple is attractive. That There's red and it can be beautiful in its own way. Those things are just as much ordained by God as are the physical atoms of which the, uh, the, the apple is made up. So it sort of moves, it helped to move me away from feeling that science has got it all. Uh, I love the scientific work, you know, and that's my background. But that's, it's, it's, it's several dimensions out of a whole which is much richer. And, you know, when I start talking about a personal God and that you and I are persons and that that has ultimate significance, that's a way of reconstituting the world as itself. You're not reducible to your atoms, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so this multiple perspectives allow me to affirm these glorious results in modern experimental science. The, the historical reconstruction, of course, of the past, you get into debates, right, about evolution, about days of creation. But the marvelous things are really in experimental science. These wonderful discoveries where they just show the beauty and glory of God. Mm. And once you're saying this is a perspective onto the world rather than something that defines who I am as mm -hmm. a bag of molecules, right? Then it's vastly different. And I think it, it can awaken people's sense of wonder and awe at the created world. Uh, just um, this semester been teaching a course on theology of science, and one of my laments has been that the 20th century, if you look at the scientific developments, it's been like an explosion. It's been two, three major new theories of, of the ultimate constituents of the world in terms of physics. It's been developments uh, in um, biology at the cellular and molecular level. Mm -hmm. We know so much more. My older son is, is, uh, did his PhD in molecular and cell biology. Wow. I read his dissertation. I didn't understand everything. But <laughs> it was just a marvel of saying, look at all this stuff that is going on. And you could be in awe of it if you think God designed it, right? And, and so I thought this in the 20th and into the 21st century, this should have been the period of history when the entirety of humanity was just breaking out in praise to God because in right. awe mm -hmm. of everything that they're discovering. And instead, it's almost the opposite. It's just appalling to think that people have learned, you know, corporately, they've learned how they, in effect, suppress mm -hmm. this awe and this testimony to God that, that, I think is they're all over the place. So it's, it's a sad time 
for humanity, but not because the world isn't a beautiful place. I mean, okay, it's, so it's a, a fallen place, right? So there's mm -hmm. sin and there's evil and there's death. But there's still so many things uh, that are testimonies to the goodness of God. And you just stand outside on a dark night and look at the stars. And people, you know, for, for millennia, they have been seeing stars and understanding some of the beauty and the, the awe of seeing this. And now 20th century, we find out the universe is a billion times larger than, than even what we thought before. So. Yeah. This, you know, it should be that, it should encourage that uh, awesome response. But anyway, the, the, the point of the multiple perspectives is if you look at scientific work as perspectival, then it ends up in exciting your awe and wonder mm -hmm. rather than saying, this is unreal, right? Because it's wholly subjective. This was is just a human reading in of something that is no more than bags of molecules, as I put it. So it's just a night and day difference, I think. Uh, and you know, there's this poem about the, that uh, the, somebody saying that the, the uh, skies are softer blue and the flowers, you know, are more beautiful. There's things that Christless eyes have never seen. Mm -hmm. Well, it's somebody waking up. Right, because that's the way we were created originally. But we've learned and taught ourselves corporately and individually to suppress that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and honestly, talking about one of uh, talking about that and just looking at nature, one of the uh, individuals who I love reading the most about this kind of stuff is is Jonathan Edwards. When you just listen to or just read him just talking about nature and God's beauty in nature. And, and he had this, uh, um, this one little line about, um, uh, about these spiders that were kind of like flying in the wind almost on these little threads. And for me, if I saw that, I'd be like, oh, spiders, no thanks. But he was just talking about the wonderfulness of God and just being able to design these spiders and then uh, just, just marveling in that as he's watching them go by. And it's just, yeah, I mean, once the, the regenerated mind sees these things anew it's just it can be an overwhelming moment yeah so the multiple perspectives come in with philosophy because i don't think that the world has a bottom so to speak a kind mm. of right. bottom layer which we could get to and analyze and build everything else on rather the bottom is god himself in his sovereign control of the world yeah. And of course, God is infinite, right? So you can never reduce this to just one perspective on the world. Yeah, yeah. So with, with these multi-perspectives, are there like a set amount of perspectives? Because I think some, some people may listen to this and, and get the wrong idea that you're, you're kind of talking about like the subjectivism, this, uh, you know, everybody's perspective is valid and all that kind of stuff. Um, so is there specific uh, perspectives from a Christian point of view that are valid when you're looking at things like philosophy and science and all these different sorts of things? Uh, yes. Um, I, I don't think there is a, li a limited list in the sense of here are 10 things and now you've seen it all. Right. <laughs> because that's <laughs> yeah. part of the point of God right. is infinite. But I think the point is very relevant to our time because uh, that postmodernist influence has got a kind of 
perspective ism, which is relativistic, which is mm -hmm. saying you have your point of view, I have my point of view, and we got to agree to live in peace because nobody can really know. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, the Christian kind of use of perfection perspectives that John Frame and I do, it's almost the a diametrical opposite because we're saying there's so much truth out there that you, it's, and it's so much around you, closing in on you at every side that you can't master. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's why you have perspectives, not because you're uncertain, but because it's just overwhelming how much God has given us. But to mm -hmm. the person who thinks relativistically, I think the first thing to say is that actually everybody is already committed. And typically the, the relativists are relativists because they think that ultimate truth is inaccessible. Mm -hmm. But if you think about that, that means they already know before they've examined any of the traditional religions, they already know that all those religions are false mm -hmm. because they claim to offer at least traditional, you know, main traditional reason claim to give you a transcendent perspective. They're all false. How do you know that? Because modern thinking has told you that religion is merely a human production. Hmm. In other words, you've left out God in the beginning. How do you expect to get him back in the end? Of course, if religion is merely generated out of human impulse, then they're all false. But how do you prove that without knowing everything, without knowing whether God actually exists mm -hmm. and the God who is distinct from the world, who created the world? So actually, there's a very absolutist claim there. Uh, Tim Keller has his book, The Reason for God, and in an early chapter he, he tackles this because he knows this is on people's minds. Mm -hmm. And he said, basically, uh, that everybody already has a religious commitment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you think you can reject the absolute claims of other people, but that's only because you have an absolute claim to mm -hmm. know better. And, and you don't even have, you're not even a religious person, <laughs> right? So right. It's, right. it's really paradoxical, right? to claim to know better when you haven't exposed yourself to any religion. But there's a history behind it. And it's a history basically that uh, contains the effects of philosophical materialism, of sociology of knowledge, but of people who have looked at human society as merely human, where God is absentee. So they've built that into their assumptions. And if you build it in the assumptions, then it's gonna come out in the conclusions. Mm -hmm. So of course, transcendent truth is inaccessible except one truth namely that transcendent truth is inaccessible hmm. so yes. you, to, to know that one hmm. truth you have to have transcended you have to have a divine vision so i think there's actually a deep religious root hmm. to postmodernist relativism which allows them with confidence with virtual religious certainty to reject out of hand any claims to no absolute truth. Mm -hmm. so, but I think they, you know, they have suppressed their own understanding of why that is. Why are you so confident? But again, it's something 
could be talked about with a more philosophical person. I think with the average person, he's just absorbed it, mm -hmm. right, from a society. So one way of going about that, I think, is to say, you know, suppose, uh, and it actually, atheist says, well, you know, you're a Christian because you grew up in a Christian environment. Well, you're an atheist because you grew up in an atheist environment. That doesn't prove anything. What if you'd grown up in an animistic culture, one of these tribal small cultures in the Amazon basin? What would you believe? Well, you'd obviously believe very different from what you believe. So why do you know that we are any better? And one of the messages of postmodernism is that all societies are equal, right? But that just destroys Western uh, uh, arrogance. Yeah. <laughs> it, it destroys uh, the platform they need to confidently reject uh, the spirit world, for instance. Because uh, mm. my wife and I uh, go to Taiwan. She was a missionary in Taiwan before we were married. The spirit world is a real thing in people's consciousness. Mm. The older generation, especially, the new Western stuff is coming in. So they worship money and, and power and, and relationships rather mm. than, than uh, temples, <laughs> temple idols. Yeah. But uh, many, many cultures of the world uh, believe in the spirit world. The West is an exception. So you better prove that your exception is right. And of course, nobody is engaged in that proof. They just assume it. Right, right. So while we're on this topic of truth, um, one of the things that you say in the book as well um, is that the, when approaching truth from a secular perspective, um, you know, talking about things like the, the correspondence, pragmatic, and the coherence theories of truth, uh, you're saying they kind of fail in one thing, and that's to recognize the difference between God and creatures. Um, can you can you kind of explain what you mean by that, and then how we as Christians then test truth in a in a correct and biblical way? Right. Well, yeah, I would refer people again to John Frame's book, The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, which mm, is actually yeah. uh, a coherent epistemology, right? Of how do we know what we know, mm. and it involves all three aspects of attention to the norms and justification of knowledge, which is found ultimately in God and his moral standards. And then it, it pay attention to the situation which God has created. And that's like the um, correspondence theory most. Well, our thoughts should correspond to God's thoughts, but they should also correspond to the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, the third one is the existential, that in effect, you, your sense of inner harmony of how things come together, that's related to the coherence view of truth, uh, that, that that has a role, although if you're, you believe in God, you know that you're dependent on God, but nevertheless, he's created you to be sensitive to when things are out of joint you know, and you believe two contradictory things, you say that, wait a minute, that's not right. <laughs> so, so we're made so that we're seeking after harmony and what we understand of the truth. So all those things go together. But if you don't have God in the picture, God who is the standard for truth, God who created the world and, and God who created you and all in a harmony, then you end up absolutizing one of those things. In effect, it's like an idol, right? So you absolutize uh, 
the, the uh, external facts. They become independent sources, not God-created facts, but just facts that are there. And so you have a correspondence view of the truth, which is, which is one level. Now, that's the thing I'd stress, because in effect, God knows the truth, and his, what he knows corresponds with what is in the world, right? And what we know corresponds with the world and with God. So there's a kind of Christian correspondence approach to the truth, but that's one perspective. And in addition, it stresses the fact that God's knowledge is complete and is the ultimate foundation for our knowledge. And then likewise, if, if it's, uh, well, it's correspondence that is more related to the situation. If, if it's justification, it's the norm, how do we justify our beliefs? Mm -hmm. uh, then that's because we have minds, right, that imitate the mind of God. So we have two levels of justification too. God is the ultimate standard, and then our sense of what is valid argumentation as the as the reflecting God. And so also then with the personal aspect, right? God is person, knowing everything as personal, knowing everything, and we as persons having a sense of harmony. So in effect, you're it, every one of those, it's three perspectives on the truth, all of which point to the others, all of which are, are mm. involved. But also in every one of those perspectives, there's two levels. There's God, and then there's human beings with mm. derivative knowledge. If you look at the founders of Western philosophy, the big ones, Plato and Aristotle, they had what I call a one-level view of truth that human reason was virtually divine, was able on its own, apart from communion with God. Of course, they, they had multiple gods in the Greek world, you know, mm -hmm. so it's no wonder that the philosophers thought that's not gonna be adequate. So, but then they made themselves the ultimate standards. So then on that basis, then you can come to know the truth, but it's all one level. There's even a Socratic dialogue, the Euthyphro, hmm. where Socrates asks whether uh, the what, how is it that uh, the whether the gods are holy just because they're gods, or whether it's because they conform to a standard of holiness which is already in place. Mm -hmm. Well, it's that second alternative where you can see the autonomy, right, of saying, I've got a standard that I'm going to apply that the gods must match. And of course, the gods are, Greek gods are not holy. They, 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 uh, they murder, they commit fornication. It's awful. So, so the whole thing is kind of corrupted at that point. But with God, there's nothing more ultimate. And the idea of we can force God into the, the mold of our, our own mind is a rebellious idea. So it's two-level epistemology, and it's, in effect, two-level ethics then, too, right? God is ultimate standard, and then our conscience and um, as being an indication of what's right and wrong, but not infallible. Mm. Yeah. Well, I got a couple more questions I want to sneak in before we, um, before we run out of time. And, and one of those is that 
Um, you say in the book that one of the issues that uh, some of the other worldviews have when they're trying to understand metaphysics, um, namely like materialism, one of the issues that they have is that of the one and the many. Um, and that's a big issue for them. Can you explain what that one of the many is and what the Christian answer to that would be? Uh, right. Well, okay, let's take the case of, of dogs, okay? Uh, and if you or I have a pet dog, that dog's an individual, but there are many dogs altogether. But the dog species is a single species. That's the one. And the Greeks already, and ever since then, the Greek philosophers debated, do you start with the one as more ultimate or you just start with the many as more ultimate? Mm -hmm. And in the medieval time, actually there were two schools of thought. One, the realists who thought that you start with the general concept, the general concept of dog, or the general concept of the, of the justice, let's say. And then you work from there to individual examples. And uh, the individual examples are somehow embodiments of the general principle. And then there were, that was the realists because they thought that the universals were real. And the nominalists thought that the universals were human constructs. They were just our concepts. Well, both of those, we haven't time to work it out, but both of those have excruciating problems <laughs> uh, because if you start with the one and if it's purely one, how can you ever get any kind of division? Mm -hmm. If you start with the, man, the many, how can you justify the idea of grouping them in a non-arbitrary way into single category? But in fact, God has made the world both one and many. And you could see this with the creation narrative in Genesis, if you think about it, because he creates distinct kinds of plants and animals. That's very clear that they're right. They propagate according to their kinds. At the same time, that has no meaning if there's not any individual plants and animals that are going to propagate the next generation. So he creates both the general categories and the individuals belonging to those categories. And I think he does that because he himself is one in three. I, the, the original one of many is in God. And then he creates a world that has those and that they are also equally ultimate. So that the, the, the philosophical debate is a fruitless one. And again, it's trying to find a bottom for the world. Plato thought the bottom for the world was the eternal forms. So those were the universals which were more ultimate than the individual things. And um, others, the atomists thought that the, it was the individual atoms. Mm -hmm. It's just more like the modern materialism, right? That's more ultimate. And uh, the Christians found Platonism to be attractive because it was had certain affinities with the truth. So they said, well, the, the ideas are in the mind of God. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an improvement than just saying they're out there forever because they become, in effect, each becomes its own God, right? It, it's eternal. Uh, so saying it's in the mind of God is better. But actually, the, the ideas are not more ultimate than the individuals because God has a comprehensive plan for the world. He doesn't just have an idea for dog and then says, well, let somebody else go ahead and then work this out and create individual dogs. He does it himself. And so the individuality 
is very important. You can see this with humanity, right? Where politically people have struggled over against either individualism, which tends to anarchy, or collectivism, which tends to totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no resolution for that. There's actually Rusis Rushduni uh, in the in the line of reform theology saw this very early. The political implications are enormous too. Mm -hmm. But if God has made us both individuals and as participants in families and larger communities, then there's you can't claim the primacy for either pole by itself. Mm -hmm. God has made the whole thing, right? He's specified he and he's he's specified structure in detail and that's part of it you know only an infinite god can do this otherwise you have to have some starting principles that are that are lower down mm -hmm. but if an infinite god can pay infinite attention to every detail at the same time give you general patterns yeah that's wonderful um, so one of the things as well as I was reading through your book uh, that jumped immediately to my mind was uh, as soon as you started talking about these, uh, these multi-perspectives uh, uh, was the implication that it has on uh, theological pursuits as well. Um, and I was very happy to actually see that you address that in the book. And so could you address that right now as well, like how this multi-perspectivism uh, kind of uh, also brings in theology with it as well? Uh, well, I'm actually not sure what you have in mind in detail, but, sure. but actually the Bible has many themes. Right. So studying the Bible, which is what theology is about, what's studying God, but mm -hmm. you know, whatever God says in the Bible, we study and we never exhaust it because there are all these themes, each of which can be used to look at the whole of God's purposes. So you take, let's say, the theme of, of prophets and prophetic revelation. Um, but everything God does in the world, one perspective on it is to say he does by speaking. He issues commands. So the prophet angle can be one angle by which you explore the entire history of God's dealings with the world. And the final mm -hmm. prophet is Jesus. And that says something distinctive about Jesus. He was a teacher, right? And not only a teacher, but he showed us in himself the way to God. So that is, it is a content meaning that comes through Jesus as prophet, but he's also king and he's priest. Mm -hmm. He's a priest who offers his own body and sacrifice. So that gives you a distinctive perspective on what he did uh, when he came to earth. So, so actually, when you do this in theology, you develop more and uh, more insights about what scripture is teaching. Now, if you do it right, those things are not in conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. The history of theology is partly a history of people trying to take, again, one perspective and then sort of making it rule them all, again, right. you know, like the one ring, make it rule them all. So the idea that Christ's work was uh, to triumph over the demonic powers, that was called the Christus Victor theme and was seen as being antagonistic to substitutionary 
atonement, but it's not because you can't defeat Satan unless you defeat his accusations of guilt, right? So you got to deal with guilt. So, yeah. so actually, those are two complementary perspectives on the entire work of Christ. And so that's an example, but you can do that over and over again because the purpose of God is one, right? Everything is, is unified in the mind of God, and also it's diverse. There's all this richness to who God is, and that's being expressed in as God works in history. Yeah. So the last question that I have is uh, that it, it seems like there's a, a little bit of a resurgence, I guess, in the interest in philosophy and in my generation and, and maybe the ones that's coming up in college right now. Um, I mean, you have people like uh, uh, Sam Harris from a uh, atheistic philosophy, uh, philosophy kind of worldview. And then you also have people like Jordan Peterson, who uh, kind of uh, rose to fame kind of overnight, it seems like. Uh, so I guess my question is, what would your advice be to people who are um, Christians and wanting to get into philosophy, but also um, maybe starting to get caught up in these other philosophical ideas as well? Right. Um, yeah, I think what I call the big questions will not go away. That's why, you know, there are these resurgences and, and the the human curiosity, but also just the desperation of saying, I want to know what my life is about, right? And I think there's a lot of wandering young people that end up in philosophy majors because they're trying to solve their personal <laughs> sort of existential yeah. issues of what's the meaning of the world, right? So I understand that. But to, for a Christian who's getting into it, or even a non-Christian, I'd say, you got to understand that the history of philosophy is not a, 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 an empty slate that's filled innocently, but rather it's filled by people who are trying to achieve definitive knowledge, wisdom, or mm -hmm. philosophy, etymologically love of wisdom. But they're trying to achieve that wisdom independent of God. So, you know, it's better to go to Proverbs and say, dear Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. Uh, now, John Frame, if there's one book I'd recommend, it would be John Frame's book, The History of Western Philosophy and Theology. Hmm. Because that book is a gigantic warning. He, he analyzes an incredible number of figures in philosophy and, and to some extent in theology. Incredible number through the history, the whole history from the uh, you know, pre-Socratic philosophy onward. And I hope that people reading that will get his message of saying, this is dangerous stuff when you're entering the stream of philosophy because of bad assumptions, mm -hmm. of rebellious assumptions that we can achieve wisdom apart from submitting ourselves to the verbal revelation from, from God in the scripture. And, you know, you... You go to a philosophy class in a major university, can you enter into the debate by quoting from scripture? And the answer is almost certainly no, unless it's a very unusual class, <laughs> because they want to do it without reference to divine revelation. But that, you know, if God is God, then it's basically saying, I'm in rebellion. That's the history of philosophy. Even Christian philosophers, I think, have to some extent succumbed 
And that's why this book by Frame is so important. It doesn't mean that philosophy is unimportant. It is because it's an issue of the big questions. But I think uh, as fallen sinful people, we've got to recognize we need, desperately need God's instruction to answer those questions rightly. Well, Dr. Poitras, thank you again so much for uh, being willing to take the time and, and speak with me. Um, is there a way that people can keep up with what you're doing uh, or uh, a way that they can learn a little bit more about you and your works? Well, there's a website. Uh, it's called frame and then a hyphen symbol and then poitras.org. And it, it looks like it might be a blog site, but neither on frame nor I have been traditional bloggers. So the, we add things periodically, but they're in you know, their articles that we add. Uh, so, but you can't see what's going on, although it's, it's only slowly changing because of the nature of the site. But there's an accumulation from many years of the work of John Frame and me. So that's, I think, the best uh, way to go. Uh, and I'm not sure, I don't think the website may link to it, but there's also a faculty page at Westminster Seminary. But again, that's, you know, we're not, <laughs> we're not updating in terms of current news most of the time. <laughs> and, and if you think about it, even though you can go from crisis to crisis in the current news, the, it, the big issues remain the same. The mm -hmm. issues about the meaning of human life, about is there redemption and is that found in Christ? Mm -hmm. Those things don't change. So, so it's easy to be too caught up with, well, what's the next thing? But anyway, those two sites, the Westminster Seminary, wts.edu, under my faculty page. And, but the main one is framepoitress.org. Yeah, well, and I can attest that the, uh, the, the framepoitress.org is just, it's a treasure trove of information and just timeless truths that, um, that I've learned so much from. And I've learned a lot from you. And I, again, I can't thank you enough for, for doing this. Um, and uh, I hope you have a, a wonderful day and uh, that, you, that you stay safe and, and healthy and all of that good stuff. Well, thank you, Michael, for inviting me. I've enjoyed the time together. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.